continuing in our series called No Compromise. It's a study through the book of Daniel. And um, for me, I've been beginning to really crack open this book. Now, not that it's a mystery, not that it's some kind of, you know, not that we need a red decoder in order to unlock the mysteries of Daniel. Um, even as we went into this series, I, I, I knew something about it, but the deeper I go into it, the more I'm learning. And I find that that's oftentimes the best kind of learning that can take place in a church when you are learning as well as I. And as we're learning through the book of Daniel together, I'm going to talk today from Daniel chapter 4, which is the famous story of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the famous dream, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's tree. And so this tree of Nebuchadnezzar and this dream, Daniel chapter 4, is where we are today. And I'm going to talk along two headings. So if you look in your bulletin, in your notes, you'll see the two halves. First, I'm going to talk about the tree, the tree of Nebuchadnezzar. And then secondly, I'm going to talk about the madness, the tree and the madness. It's kind of a cool title. And uh, I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, I'm going to read in its entirety. It's kind of a long passage 37 verses, and so we have some artwork in the background that thematically, you know, we're not just throwing it up there, but thematically follows with this chapter. So listen to the word of the Lord as I read from Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. And so right away, this changes. For the first three chapters, we hear the story of Daniel. Daniel referred to in third person, he, they. But now Nebuchadnezzar speaks in first person. It's almost as if they said, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the microphone. And they pass the microphone so that Nebuchadnezzar can testify. And so Nebuchadnezzar himself says in verse 3, How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Those words are significant because they're lifted right out of Psalm, Psalm, Psalm something or another. Psalm 145. So those words are lifted right out of Psalm 145, and he will repeat them again at the end. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar has finally learned the Word of God. He's finally learned the Bible. And so in learning the Bible, and for us even here at adult, in adult Sunday school, we're learning the Scripture so that we can adopt it and make it our own language. This is a Babylonian reciting Scripture here. His, his domain is from generation to generation, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. This is a Babylonian learning the word of God. And he continues in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and saw the visions in my mind, they, were, they kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they, might, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. 
So this is the second time Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The first time, it was of the great statue. And he told the magicians and the conjurers, and he said, tell me my interpretation as well as the dream. This time, it's a second dream. It's a different dream. It's a dream about the tree. And he says, give me the interpretation. And none of them could tell him. But finally, in verse 8, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Now, this is a pagan. This is, Babel, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. And I told the dream and said, O Belteshazzar, chief of magicians, since I know a spirit of the holy gods is in you, no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream and its interpretation. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And here's the famous dream about the tree. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew large, it became strong, and its height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the earth, its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under the tree, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves, all had sustenance from this one tree. And I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from hev heaven. And he shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, and let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet, leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, and as much as none of the wise men is able to tell me, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while, as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar says, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, its foliage beautiful, fruit abundant, in which food was for all, under which beasts of field dwelt and branches, of the, uh, branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, you are the tree. You've become great and strong, and your majesty has reached to the sky, that's important, your majesty, the tree, has reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, saying, chop down the tree, 
Leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron in the new grass of the field, drenched through the dew of heaven, sharing with beasts of the field, seven periods of time passing over. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree which came upon my Lord, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. And you, O king, be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time pass over, until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded, leave the stump with the roots, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Just a little bit more. In verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon, and the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was still in his mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed. It just takes one stroke. It just takes one bout with depression. It just takes one heart attack. Sovereignty has been removed and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on whomever He wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and he began eating grass like cattle, body drenched with dew of heaven. His hair had grown like eagle's feathers and birds like uh, nails like birds' claws, and at the end of that period, Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And listen to the words of praise once again, for His dominion is everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of earth are counted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say, what have you done? Hard lessons learned. Hard lesson learned. You'll see His son after this in the next chapter doesn't learn this lesson. And finally, in verse 36, at that time, my reason returned and my majesty and splendor came back. They were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and nobles began seeking me out. I was reestablished in sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven for all his works are true, his ways just. And the important words here, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is the word of the Lord. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Friends, while repentance is handed out to you, take it. Take it before it gets worse. 
So we begin with this first half. I know the reading was long, but a short reflection on this first part. The tree, the tree. You see, the dream starts off good enough. It starts off good. Trees are good things. All throughout the Bible and even outside of the Bible, whenever there's a tree, oftentimes it's interpreted in a good way. Let me give you an illustration. For example, um, two winters ago, two winters ago we had some hard freezes. Last winter as well, but for particularly I remember this spring. And these hard freezes killed everything in the neighborhood. In the seven years at that time that I'd lived in Houston, I had not seen anything like that yet. And I would, drive through Houston, I would drive through my neighborhood and you'd see all the dead plants. They were all rotted and the stalks had all turned black with decay. And so seeing all of this death and that also being kind of, for me personally, a discouraging and a difficult season, you don't want to see that death. You don't want to see that things that you plant are dying. And so I remember one warm spring day cozying up to my bougainvillea plant that I've always been fighting to grow to make it blossom or stepping up to my plumeria and it was warm enough for me to get on my hands and on my knees and to examine closely and what I saw, it made me cry. What I saw in the bougainvillea were little red buds, little red dots, growth. It's alive. It's still alive. And then I saw the plumeria, which I thought was dead. But then I saw a single stalk shoot up. Hope. You see, a tree and a dream of a tree is a good dream. It's a good dream because it symbolizes fruit. It symbolizes hope. It symbolizes establishment. I mean, here's another Lord of the Rings reference. If you're familiar with the white tree of Gondor, the great hope was that when the king returned, the tree would blossom once again. A white tree, that's a dead tree. It's dead. But if a white tree can blossom yet again, there's hope. So a tree is a good thing. It's a good thing to dream about a tree. It's a good thing to dream about a tree. The problem is this dream turns bad. And what started out as a good dream becomes a nightmare. How could such a positive metaphor, such a positive thing, become so negative and become so bad? For that, I want to draw your attention and rewind the story to Genesis chapter 10. And I'm going to sidetrack here this tangent. It might seem like, it might seem like it's a tangent, but it's going to circle back into our main story about a tree. So stay with me closely here because we're learning. I'm learning in the process. Genesis chapter 10 verse 9 introduces an interesting character named Nimrod. Nimrod. That's a very interesting name and person, personality. In verse 9, it says Nimrod, who happened to be the great-grandson of, anybody know? Noah. Nimrod, in Genesis chapter 10, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's what it says. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, this is a good name, isn't it? You might say if you're into hunting or if you're a masculine guy and you're having a baby and the, it's a boy and you say, honey, we're going to name him Nimrod. 
What a wonderful name, strong name, good name. The problem is not many Jewish boys, last I checked, are named Nimrod. Jewish people don't name their sons Nimrod. Why? Because in Jewish tradition, Nimrod had negative connotations. There were bad things. He was considered in Jewish history, in Jewish tradition, he was considered a dark leader in rebellion to God and tyrannical. He was a tyrant. In fact, St. Augustine, who was a Christian, St. Augustine translates Genesis 10, verse 9, as Nimrod was not a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod was a mighty hunter against God. He was a hunter against God. That's how Augustine translates it. Josephus, the historian, says that this Nimrod wanted revenge on God. He wanted revenge. If God had a mind to drown the world again with what? The flood. If God is going to drown the world with water again, what is Nimrod going to do? He says, I am going to build a tower too high for God to reach. Too high for the waters to be able to drown us. I am going to go beyond and above God. That's what Nimrod may have said according to Jewish tradition. I'm going to build a tower beyond the reach. Remember this theme? Above and reaching to the heavens, we won't need God. Someone attempting to go beyond and above the reach of God. Now the question, how does this connect with the tree? What does this have to do with Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Stick with this. Listen. In verse 10 of Genesis 10, the next verse, after Nimrod was a mighty hunter before or against the Lord, what does it say? In Genesis 10.10, it says, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. Babel. Okay, so you're making the connection. What are we talking about? First of all, we're talking about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And, Jew and Jewish tradition asserts, and you can see this, it's connected, Genesis 10. No wonder the Tower of Babel comes up right after in Genesis 11. And according to tradition, not only did Nimrod build the Tower of Babel to reach beyond God, but Babel is the beginning of what? Babylon. So who was Nimrod? In a sense, Nimrod was Nebuchadnezzar's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy. How many of you know your grandparents? How many of you know your great-grandparents? How many of you know the good things about them? How many of you know the bad things about them? That DNA that started with Nimrod to build a tower so high that God can't catch me anymore still exists down the history in his great-great-great-grandson Nebuchadnezzar and I tell you, it, ex it still exists today. This sentiment that says, I'm gonna be beyond the reach of God, I'm gonna build something so that God can't touch me, that sentiment still exists to this day. I tell you that if you found Nebuchadnezzar's tree in his dream and you scraped the bark away, you know what you would find underneath it? Nimrod's tower, the Tower of Babel. 
Friends, what we're talking about is ancient, ancient stuff. The Tower of Babel, this goes back to the very beginning. What we're saying is the Tower of Babel, Babylon, existed from day, well, I mean, from, from the very beginning of Genesis. It continued through Daniel, and it continues all the way to the end of the Bible. And to this very day, the desire to build a tower that will go so high that we won't need God still exists. And whenever we feel within us that power urge or that urge to escape God, we are building a tower of Babel. We are dreaming Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a tree. Do you see that connection? Let me illustrate. Let me illustrate how this has anything to do with me or us today. This week, I was driving downtown. I was headed downtown on I-10. Now, I was driving on I-10. I won't tell you exactly where it was. I saw a bright sign, a very bright sign, familiar sign. I pass this place all the time. <clears throat> the sign was blinking with a green background, glaring, garish, blinking to get your attention. And on this sign, there was a picture of a mother, a mother smiling. She was so happy, holding a baby. And as she's holding this baby, she's so happy holding the baby, the words underneath the sign said, turn hope into happiness. Turn hope into happiness. And I'm sympathetic with this. You might see what this is about. Maybe you under, you're understanding what I'm talking about. That there, unfortunately, is this thing called infertility. And there is this experience that's painful, deeply painful for women. And throughout Scripture, we have the women, Rachel, Rebecca, Hannah, Sarah, who prayed and hoped and cried to God, if only I had a child, I would feel complete. God, why don't you look on me and give me the thing that I long for, the thing that I yearn for? Well, you know, you could just go down the road and for $5,000 turn hope into happiness. We don't really need to wait on God anymore, do we? Do we? Do we? Friends, it's a brave new world that we live in today where for $5,000, you can buy your hope. You can buy your happiness. It's a time where we, do, we no longer need that long waiting and praying and tears and crying out to God because we have Amazon. I mean, there will come a day maybe when Amazon will deliver that baby right to your doorstep. And you won't even have to go through all of that pain. Power. If only I could build a tower where I don't need to hope anymore in God. If only I could build a tower and science could solve all of these problems. Yes, we are talking. I'm not attacking science. But I am saying that science needs to ask hard ethical questions. When we're dealing with stuff like human embryonic stem cell research or when we're talking about reproductive genetic technologies, all of these things and so on and so forth, there's a lot of stuff needs to be brought under the scrutiny of Christian ethics. And so the application I'm offering you, the application before you think like Nebuchadnezzar, wow, I did this. I don't need to hope in God anymore. Before we say that, 
The question, the application, the fill in the blank, the first one is reflect and seek pastoral guidance on the ethics of what I do. I spent the week, um, not this past week, but a while back um, with some scientists at Rice University sitting on a board talking about science and faith and what it means as Christians for us to really wrestle with some of these things. You know, I'm actually open-minded when it comes to science. I don't really, I don't buy the, the, the young earth theory, that, that kind of creationism. I'm not, I'm not convinced by that. You know, I think there is room to believe in science and to understand its place and its efficacy for us. But I don't think that we should quickly take science as the solution to the God question. And it's not just science, in economics, in business, Am I doing what is ethical? Am I doing the right thing? These things require pastoral guidance. Don't wrestle with it alone. Ask somebody in the church, do you think this is right? Lest Babylon and the root of Babylon live in you. We don't want the seed of Babylon to live in us today because if the seed of Babylon lives within us like it lives in Nebuchadnezzar, what happens? What happens? The madness sets in. The madness will set in. And this leads us to our second half. The madness sets in. I was in Minneapolis two weeks ago at a pastor's conference And I spent time with people who I respect and admire, people who are older than me, people who've been pastors and in ministry for longer, and I was surprised to find out one by one that they're telling me that in their 40s, I'm 41, that somewhere in their 40s, a lot of them experience some kind of mental breakdown. There's a pastor of one church where I, I remember I even applied. I'm going to keep it anonymous. I applied because I wanted to work with him, and it didn't work out. Um, but just recently, this older brother, this pastor, this good man, he took an indefinite leave of absence from his church. The church is growing, thriving, a lot of things happening. Why did he do that? Not because of a moral failure, but because one Sunday he came up to the pulpit and he tried to preach. <laughs> Nothing came out. He had a breakdown. And so his staff had to walk him off the stage. Very strong, strong man. I know him. But in his 40s, breakdown. Now, I'm not accusing him or anybody, uh, you know, I'm not saying that they were evil or that they had Babylon in them. But what I am saying is I heard more and more stories. It is frightening, it is concerning of people in the prime of life, not their 30s, in their 40s, having some kind of major breakdown. Like I said, if it's not a mental breakdown, it could be a stroke. Maybe it's a heart attack. Maybe it's something else. But whatever the case is, whatever the case is, there is something called limits. And if you look in your bulletin, the second fill in the blank, I just want to give you 
a couple of limits to set that we should set for ourselves. You see, why are limits important? Because these, these older pastors who I looked up to, where did things go wrong? Things went wrong when every door is opening up for you. I know what this is like. Doors are opening left and right. You're having opportunities. People finally recognize you. They know your name. And you can't say no. Why? Because you want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do everything. And you think you've reached your limits, but no, you haven't because the world keeps giving you more. And they're saying, we want you to do this. We want you to do that. And you think, quite insanely, that you can handle it all. The gift of limits. Here are a few fill-in-the-blanks as we close out. The first gift of limits. My advice, just tell yourself, live, die, and be forgotten. That sounds so morbid now that I'm actually saying it. But I think we want to build a tower where Wayne Park's name will exist into perpetuity. But you know what? Perhaps the most humble and sanest, healthiest thing I can say is I want to live. I want to live well. And when I die, I can be forgotten. I don't need to be a statue. Or how about this? Another gift of limits. It comes from the serenity prayer. Can I be reasonably happy? Can you be reasonably happy in this life? And supremely happy in the next? No. I want to be supremely happy now. I want ice cream. I want... <laughs> sweets, I want movies, I want fun, fun, fun. I want to be supremely happy now, and then when I get to heaven, I'll be reasonably happy. That's why we get depressed, right? Because we realize that life is not all potato chips and cake and fun stuff. And then we realize, uh-oh, I don't have any happiness. The serenity prayer teaches us well. It says, let's be reasonably happy. May I be reasonably happy. Reasonably happy, but supremely happy. I can be supremely happy in the next life. It's very sobering. Or how about this, the third gift of limits? It's the words of Galadriel, which I've said before. Pass the test. Diminish. Go into the West and just be Galadriel. Right? I pass the test. I will diminish. I'll go into the West and I'll just remain Anthony. I'll pass the test. I'll diminish. I'll just go into the West and I'll just remain Raymond, I'll just remain. Crystal, Jenny. And of course, there's a fourth one which I'm finding to be a very powerful theme of this whole book. God is God, and I am not. The sanest thing I can say is I'm not God. I can stop trying to be God. I'm not indispensable you know, for those, of, for those of you that are just a little bit younger than me, let me shepherd you. We think, we're, we start to think we're indispensable. Insanity. We're not indispensable. The world can actually run just fine without us. God is God and I am not. The healthiest thing we can say, every time we say that, we take a step closer to health and sanity but every time we say, no, I'm indispensable, every time we say, do you know who I am? Every time we say, I, I, it, it's dependent on me, then we actually move a step closer to insanity. Insanity. 
Therefore, O king, I speak to you kings and queens, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing right and break from your iniquities by showing mercy in case, in case you might be able to hold on and prolong your health, your prosperity. Let's pray. So I invite the worship team back up. Are you building a tower? It has your name on the pedestal. Are you guarding it with your life? Are you jealously furthering your kingdom? It's like a board game. It's like a game of risk. You've got more armies than anybody else. Are you advancing your position this Sunday here in a place of worship? Can you let God, can we let God run our lives? Is this hard? Maybe the best thing we can just say with hands opened up is I'm willing. I'm just willing, God, that's it. I don't know what this means. It's scary. I'm doing too much. I'm juggling too many balls. I'm willing. Are you able to say I'm willing to do whatever, whatever is necessary, whatever you call me to? Or how about this? I'm willing to just be made willing because right now I'm unwilling. And so I invite you to talk to God. Use this time of prayer right now as the worship team plays this next ministry song, and as they minister over you, talk to God and give Him those areas of unwillingness and allow Him to operate on your soul at this time. Mm -hmm.